number nine of uh, Kingdom Builders, time to engage, and um, I hope that you've been blessed, I hope you've been challenged, um, and week number nine brings us to the end of this, uh, this series, so all of you can take a deep breath and say amen. Um, but I, I just want to recap a little bit about where we've, we've been going, we went over the last uh, nine weeks. The, fir- the, first, the first week we uh, covered God is still pouring out His Spirit on all flesh. Um, some of you that were baptized in the Holy Spirit one day long ago, but I'm telling you that the Bible does not teach a one-time baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's a continual thing that happens in our lives that we are filled to overflowing with the power and, and the presence of God in our lives. And, and we as individuals need to constantly, we'll probably talk about this next week, but we need to constantly be filled um, to overflowing with the Holy Spirit, the presence of the Holy Spirit, just the awareness of God in our life and His power. Um, but we're empowered to, and the reason why He does this is, is because that's part of living in the kingdom. That's part of living in the kingdom. And we are all kings and priests. That was what we see in week two. We're all kings and priests, making up one holy building, one spiritual building in the, king, in the kingdom of God. In, in week three, we've seen that we all have received gifts. All of, all means all, right? I've told you this before. When I go to the cupboard and I grab like a bag of, a box of uh, Cheez-Its or something, something that's in the cupboard and I open it up and because my kids got to it first, it's all gone, right? All, there's, all of it's gone. Well, this is just the opposite. All of us have received gifts from God. And that might be like, I didn't know that. Well, now you know. Start talking to him about what, Lord, what gift have you, have you given me so that I can be effective, not only in my everyday life, but in, in, in the kingdom of God. And in week four, we've seen that Jesus has given the fivefold ministry to equip the body for the work of the ministry. Right? We, we need to be around people. Uh, we need to have church leaders that are out for your good. They're out to equip you, to mature you, to disciple you in the things of God and what God has put in you so that you can turn around and be a blessing to the world. We, you, sh- you should not connect yourself with leaders that are constantly trying to make you dependent on them. That's not how the body of Christ works. It's not super dupers and everybody else is just average citizens in, in, the, in the body of Christ. No, each of us have been gifted by, the, by God. Each of us have the whole, same Holy Spirit. Each of us has a mission and a divine destiny given to us by God. And leadership should be cultivating that in the body of Christ. In, in week five, we've seen that ministry is not a one-size-fits-all. We try to copy what we've seen other people do. We try to think that my personality isn't a personality that God can use. You know, look, Jesus, the way He ministered throughout the Gospels, is it's different all the time. It's not cookie cutter. God's not looking for... God is a God of variety. Right? He likes choices. I mean, and we talked about that. Look around this room. He, he likes different types of people. Right? Because you guys are different. But and I, I'm different, right? We're all different. And, and, and He's called us to, to, so we can minister to others and we've, we've been um, created for a particular function in the kingdom of 
God. In week six, we've seen that Jesus, this is such great news, Jesus is committed to building his church. The great committed, com, 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 no, committed. Great committed. Great, that's, not, that's not a good way to say that. He is committed, right? The great, the three, the three greats, or the great, three great C's or whatever, committed. And then he is, because Jesus is committed to us, he has given us the great commission. And that commission is to go out and spread the good news that Jesus Christ has delivered us from sin, death, and the grave, that he wants to make you, uh, bring you into the, to the very, presence of God through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. He wants to make you a new creation. He wants to put a right mind inside of you. He wants to turn your world right side up. He wants things to be good, better than you could ever dream or hope. That's the, that's the, the message that we get to go out and tell people. And we do this by walking in the great commandment, right? By receiving the love of God in our lives, then in turn, and empowered by that love, we can love God and love our, our neighbors as, as ourselves. And then week 7, we've seen that each one of us is called to be in the game and not a spectator on the sideline. There's a great difference between someone that's in the stands and someone that's actually sweating, that's actually getting blows and punches and, and trying to get the ball across the, the goal line. There's a big difference between those two people. We're not called to be spectators in the kingdom of God. We are called to engage. And then week eight, we've seen that Jesus wants us to know Him. He wants us to know Him and choose to lay down our lives and follow Him because we also are known by Him. That, that we are known by God, and because we are known by God, and because we know Him, we can step out boldly into what He's called us to do. We can lay down our desires, the things that we think that we want in life, and follow the things that He's calling us to, because that's where we know that life will truly be found. And that brings us to today. Today, week 9, you are living in this moment to fulfill God's purpose and in that, life is truly found. We are called for such a time as this. A.B. Simpson, he, uh, this is a quote for, from them. Then, uh, um, the Christian that is bound by his own horizon, the church that lives simply for itself, is bound to die a spiritual death and sink into Stagnancy and corruption. We never can thank God enough for giving us not only the whole gospel to believe, but a whole world to give it to. Have you ever wondered why you were born? Have you? All the time? How about, how about the timing of your birth? Not only why was I born, but why was I born... Right this time in history. Why were you born? And why were? how about where you were born? Listen to what Paul tells the, um, states to the Athenians in Athens. 
He says in Acts chapter 17, verse 26, he says, For one man, from one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. See, if God can mark out and appoint times of nations, what about individuals within those nations? You might believe that you have no purpose, that you're here by accident, but God and the Scriptures make it clear that He knows you, He knew you before you were born, and He has a plan for your life that was before you were ever a thought in your, in your mother's mind. See, maybe you were unplanned for your parents. Maybe you think that you were an accident. But you were no accident to God. He has known you before the foundation of the world and He has both a purpose and a plan for your life. And that purpose and that plan does not evaporate with age. Consider these Scriptures. In Jeremiah 1.5 it says, I knew you before I formed you in your mother's womb. Before you were born, I set you apart and appointed you as a prophet to the nations. In 2 Timothy 1.9, God who has saved us, hallelujah, and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. You are no accident. And God is trying, isn't trying to figure things out as life goes along. You know? In, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, it says, For we are the workmanship, His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The, pa- the Passion paraphrases, paraphrases it this way. Um, we have become His poetry. That's what that workmanship means. It means, in the Greek, it actually means artwork. We have become His poetry, a recreated people that will fulfill the destiny He has given each of us. For we are joined to Jesus, the Anointed One. Even before we were born, God planned in advance our destiny and the good works we should do to fulfill it. I mean, this should, this should encourage a lot of us. This should encourage a lot of us that, you know, God is, is, is for me. He's not against me. He has a plan. He has a destiny. I'm on the right track. I'm going to keep moving forward with a blessed hope. I'm going to keep moving forward in faith. I'm, I'm going to keep wo- wo- going forward in, in the Holy Ghost. But for others of us, it, it should be, it'd be, it'd be a sobering thought. A sobering thought. That each of us are responsible to fulfill God, the assignment that God has given us. I mean, how many of us, not, none of us, want to stand before Jesus only in, in, in the end only to find out that we did not fulfill anything that He planned for us to do. And to only realize then that we lived our entire life self-centered, and trying to fulfill our own plans. 
Now understand, we know salvation is not based on having perfectly fulfilled God's plan for your life. Right? There's only one person that has ever done that flawlessly, and that his name is what? Jesus. We are saved by grace through faith. But here's the point. The welfare of others, the welfare of others can be connected to our obedience. The welfare of others are connected to our obedience. And we can transform lives, we can transform generations by partnering with God and what He wants to do in this time and in this space and where we currently are. Most of us are familiar with the story of Esther, right? Esther is, is an illustration of this in the Old Testament. Esther was, you know, for um, us that are in BAM, be a man. We've been studying the book of Daniel. Esther falls in that same time period, um, the story of Esther. So she was alive when Daniel was alive. And um, while the Jews were in Persian captivity, an evil man named Haman tried to orchestrate the extermination of the Jewish people. And at this time, there was a beautiful young Jewish woman named Esther. And she found favor in the eyes of the Persian king. And Esther's uncle Mordecai learned of Haman's plot and realized that God had strategically placed Esther in a position where she could be used to intervene and intercede on the behalf of the Jewish nation. And her uncle tells her this in Esther 4.14. It says, For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for, for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. Yet, know, yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And I think we could see, say that same thing to Christians living in this time and in this period. That God's will, God's plan, God's destiny for the church, His kingdom in this world will come to pass. But who knows if we have been placed in His kingdom for such a time as this. I mean, this idea of, a, of, of coming to the kingdom for such a time as this, it speaks so powerfully of destiny and divine purpose. Now, we, we might never be put in a position where we're, we're, we're going to change the, the outcome of an entire nation as Esther. But we've got to understand that in God's overall plan, each of the things that we're called to do plays a major role. We might not single-handedly save a nation, but God can use all of us as part of a team to change the lives of others. It's important. You know, one of the things to remember, and I've said this many times before, is that, you know, we think of great um, Christian leaders. I mean, Billy Graham is, 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 is one. And we think of what amazing work he did for the kingdom of God and reaching souls for the kingdom of God and transforming a nation and, and, and getting people to, 
focus on, on Jesus and, and the Gospel. But there was one man that led Billy Graham to the Lord. And in the eyes of many people, they think this one man isn't important. But I just wonder how important he is to the kingdom of God. That he fulfilled his purpose. He was willing to feel, fulfill his role. See, we might not think that we're changing, that what we do will change nations, but who knows that one individual that we do change, what they will do. See, it's important not to miss simple opportunities that are right in front of us. They're there every day. So often we miss the simple opportunities to be a witness for Jesus because we're sitting back waiting for some grand scale opportunity. See, if you don't have clarity in what you're supposed to do, find out how the Bible tells us that we are supposed to treat and serve others. Well, I don't want to do that, Chad. That's part of being part of the kingdom of God. It's acting, showing the world what it looks like to be a Christian. How we're supposed to treat and serve others and look for opportunities to carry out those directives in our daily lives. Look at ways to be a blessing to humanity. To be a giver rather than a taker in humanity. In 1 Corinthians 7, 17 it says, only let each person lead a life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. This is how the message translation puts it. It says, don't be wishing you were someplace else or someone else. Where you are right now is God's place for you. Live and obey and love and believe right there. Because we tell ourselves all these lies that we can't be used by God. Do any of these lies sound familiar? God could use me if I had a better education. God could use me if I had a better pastor in a better church. I think you said that. God could use you if you just had a big opportunity. Just give me the big opportunity, Lord, and I'll, and I'll, I'll hit the home run. God, you can, God can only use people who are smarter than you, speak better than you, sing better than you, whatever the better than you is. It can go on and on and on. God could use me if I was in full-time ministry. God could use me if I was wasn't so young. God can use me if I wasn't so old. And what's your excuse? God could use you if you were single. Well, God can use me if I, if, if I was married. We come up with all these excuses of why God can't use you. And God says, I want to use you exactly where you are, who you are, and the time that you are in. One of the 
big lies that the enemy tells us, and he tells believers, is he can't use us because we've messed up so much. We've failed so much. You know, that, that's what I love, love about, uh, about, the, about God, our Father, is that he gives endless mulligans. Endless mulligans. I don't know if any of you guys are golfers, but in golf, sometimes we, we allow grace for individuals. Like when they shank a ball off the tee and it goes a mile in the woods, we say, take a mulligan. That means you get a do, you get a do-over. There's no penalty, no stroke on the card. It's just a complete do-over. And God is the God of endless mulligans. God is not the God of a second chance. God is the God of another chance. And another chance and another chance. So many Christians feel that they cannot be used by God because they've messed up in the past. And I want you to hear it loud and clear. It's time to take a mulligan. It's time for a do-over. I mean, think about Peter. Peter. He boasted about how he would give his life for Jesus. He boasted that you are the Christ, the Son of God. Then Jesus turns around and tells him, get behind me, Satan. He calls him Satan. Peter denies Jesus three times. And Jesus literally says, you're going. You're going to forsake me. But when you repent, encourage your brothers. God knew that you would screw up. Just like he, Jesus knew that Peter was going to screw up. That Peter didn't have it in him to be everything that God called him to be. Until God put it in him through the new birth in the, in the Holy Spirit. Your past sins did not catch God by surprise. He knew you would fail and He loved you anyways. He knew you would fail and He sent Jesus to die anyways. He knew you would fail and He called you to be His child anyways. This is not an excuse to continue in sin. But to realize that your past does not negate God's plan for your future. Don't let false guilt keep you from serving God. If your past sin is haunting you, you need to humble yourself. You know, a person that says God can't use me because of my past sin is, is, a, is proud. Who are you to say that God can't use you? Who are you to say that God can't use you? You need to humble yourself and, and you need to go to Jesus and you've got to see yourself being cleansed by His blood. You've got you to go to Jesus and allow Him to do a deep work in your heart and cleanse you and restore you and fill you with the Spirit. I mean, and, and if what you've done in your past has hurt and offended others, Make sure that you have truly repented and made efforts 
towards them to do whatever needs to be done so that they can know that you're no longer that person anymore. That, that you, you are sorry for the way that you have affected them and hurt them. Don't just seek forgiveness, but seek healing for yourself and for those that you've injured. Do whatever it takes to rebuild trust and rebuild credibility with them. I'm telling you, doing things the Bible's ways will clear up your life so wonderfully. Far too many Christians talk about a coming revival. A great move of God that's yet to come. That's great. But if we don't do anything while we're waiting for God to do something, we're missing it. We're missing it. I love what William Booth said. William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, he says, I am not waiting for a move of God. I am a move of God. See, we're waiting for revival. Revival has to come when things are dead. I'm not dead. Are you dead? You literally carry revival in you. You carry the life of Jesus in you. You have the words of life in you. You have the spirit of life in you. You have the light of life in you. You are revival. But what happens when revival is put under a basket? It doesn't affect anything. What happens when revival loses its saltiness? It's thrown out and trampled on because it has no value. I believe the vast majority of the church has has been thrown out and trampled on by the world, not because they hate us or they hate Jesus, but they don't see that we have any value. You are a move of God. And if you don't know what to do, start with where you are and what you have now. Instead of dreaming about some far-off future move of God, Ask God to open your eyes to the opportunities that are all around us now. You know, Paul said in Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, it says, wherever we have the opportunity, we should do good to everyone, especially to those in the family of faith. Here's what Jesus said in John chapter 4, verse 35. He says, you know the saying, four months between planting and harvest, but I say, wake up, look around. Can you hear Jesus saying this? Wake up! Look around! The fields are already ripe for harvest. The harvesters are paid a good, good wages. And the fruit they harvest is people brought to eternal life. What joy awaits both the planter and the harvester alike. But Chad, we're living in the last days. We're living in the last days, and this is going to, some of you got, your gears might get smoking here. Things are supposed to get worse and worse. They're supposed to get darker and darker. There's, there's, 
there's going to be a great falling away and just a remnant is going to be that going to be remain and I'm part of that remnant. I got a whole basement filled with guns, baked beans, dried rice, batteries to prove it. It does Chad, it has to get worse and worse for Jesus to come back. Don't you know that Satan through the Antichrist, has to take over the whole world? First of all, we are not living in the last days. We are not living in the last days. The Jews were living in the last days. The early church was living in the last days. The last days ended in 70 A.D. The Jews were judged for rejecting their Messiah and Jerusalem, the temple, and the whole old covenant system was done away with. See, we, we read this. We, we think that G, the reason why we have a hard time interpreting the Bible is because we, we do a little bit of the New Testament and a little bit of the Old Testament. The Old Testament has been completely done away with. Completely. If you are trying to appease God, if you're trying to, to earn God's favor by doing things in the Old Testament, you are Antichrist. You have the spirit of Antichrist. The New Covenant is all about Jesus. It's all about faith in Jesus. It's all about dependent on Jesus. It's all about what Jesus has accomplished. It's all about Jesus. And when you start reading the New Testament and finding things are coming to an end and the end is near and all this end of days and you start reading it through the lens of the old covenant, the old system, the old way that God dealt with humanity through the Jewish nation is coming to an end because they rejected their Messiah. It opens up the whole book. We don't have to look for Morse code and pick and choose and find all these things and put them together and make up this sci-fi mystery. We are not living in the last days. The church is living in a new day. We are living in a new day. And we are waiting for the day when Jesus, our Lord, Let me ask you, did Jesus say the gates of hell will not prevail against the church? Amen. Well, until the Antichrist gets here, right? Did Jesus say that the kingdom of God will grow until it's greater than all the plants in the garden? Did Jesus say that the kingdom of God was like yeast and it, and it, and it will fill the dough until the whole loaf is affected? I mean, these, I, don't have, I don't have to come up with a storyline for any of this stuff. This is what Jesus plainly said would happen. Did Daniel say that the stone that is Christ will destroy the kingdoms of this world and the stone will grow into a mountain until it fills up the whole world? 
Paul say? That all creation is groaning and moaning and travail for the manifestation of the sons and daughters of God. See, the problem with so many Christians is they're treating their life, they're treating this world, they're treating the things that God is trying to do in the world like a rental car. How many of you guys treat your rental car the same way that you treat your car? One of the things that I find interesting, you know, they used to be able to go to repo lot. You know, they have websites and you could buy a, a repo car. And you could get a really good deal on it, but I was always concerned about it because I'm thinking, if it's repoed, I wonder how many oil changes it had. You know, I wonder how they took care of it. How do you guys take care of a rental car when you have it? You drove it, you drive it like you stole it. Right? Some of you have had them up on two wheels. I know you. You know, I hit a curb. Oh. How many of you have ever, after you just rented a rental car, said, you know what? I'm going to take it to the detail shop. I'm going to have it detailed. I'm going to have it, have it uh, armor-alled. I'm going to have it polished before I return it. The only reason you return it with a full tank is because they're going to charge you more if you don't. And a lot of Christians are living like this world is going to pass away. That, that this isn't my home. I'm telling you, this is your home. If you, if, you go to, if you go to be with the Lord before Jesus' return, guess what? You're coming back with the Lord and this is your home. Jesus says when He returns, He's going to judge the nations. There will be sheep nations and there will be goat nations. So if Jesus is going to judge the nations, there's going to be sheep nations and there's going to be goat nations. When He returns the second time, how can the Antichrist take over the whole world? We need to start visualizing that this is God's planet. This is Jesus' inheritance. This is our inheritance. We need to treat it like we own it. Rather than we're just renting it. But Chad, things are getting worse. No, they're not. Things are not getting worse. And if they are getting worse, then whose fault is it when 70% of Americans claim to be Christians? 70% claim to be Christians. And our country's getting worse. <laughs> but things aren't getting worse. I mean, one of the reasons why you know they're get, not getting worse is because when you see evil start happening in our culture, there's uproars about it. We have people that don't even call themselves Christians saying, this is, this is nuts. This isn't, this isn't good. This isn't the way it's supposed to be. People are getting fruity. We're losing common sense. This isn't what, how I want to raise my family. And they're not Christians. Why? Because they've been influenced by the kingdom for so long. And even them, 
They can distinguish good, what's good for society, versus what's evil. Am I saying that there is not evil happening in their society? No. I mean, this whole, this whole series has been a, because of that. We want to see the kingdom grow. But here's the truth. I'm only going to go back 200 years, okay? 200 years ago, that's when it was the good old days, wasn't it? In the early 1800s, there were about 5 million immigrants in the United States. But 20% of them were slaves. Those statistics reveal a great evil. Think about the way that society thought back then. Not all society, but a portion of society. It was evil. It was evil. Can you even imagine enslaving someone and forcing them to, to work with you for you? To take them from their family. Give them no hope. Give them no opportunity for success. No life. Can you imagine that? The age of sexual consent in many states 200 years ago was 9 to 10 years old. We were no better than a lot of Muslim countries. Abortion was legal throughout most of the 19th, 19th century and records tell us that more than one-fifth of all pregnancies were aborted. And Michigan having the highest rate of 34%. Alcoholism was much higher in that day than it is today. Prostitution was also higher. In New York City, it said that it, they had an approximately one prostitute for every 64 men. The, the mayor of Savannah estimated that his city had one for every 39 men. The percentage of Americans going to church was about equal to that which is today. 30 to 45 percent. Thousands of people were moving west, and most of them had no churches to attend when they got there until years later, after they had settled, made communities, and things were developed. Native Americans were being forced off their lands, and some of some of them, um, you know, in some cases they were murdered. Thousands of Chinese people were were being brought into the west coast of the United States to serve as forced laborers. When gold was discovered in various regions in the west, gold rushes occurred, which produced some of the vilest and most dangerous communities in the world. We love them. We call them the westerns. Many people in the west carried guns for protection because murder was commonplace. Throughout the United States, women could not vote and men could legally beat their wives so long as they did not maim or kill them. Things in the United States were not better morally, they were better ethically, nor were they better spiritually. Thank God that he, by His providence, His protection, there were some godly individuals that were laying down the foundation of the United States government. But the moral 
and ethical climate of America was much worse than it is today. The good old days were not so good. And if you go back in history even further, it's even worse. It's worse. And I know a victorious view can be difficult to accept for many Christians who have been submerged in a pessimistic into the world view. There are many Christian pre- preachers who regularly preach at the dire conditions of the world around us. And I'm not saying that the work is done, but of course, that's the reason why we're doing this series, right? Here's the problem. Here's the problem. I believe many in the body of Christ are so envious at people that live in the world apart from God They can't wait for judgment to fall on them and for them to get theirs. I've been living like a Christian for this long and look at them. I can't wait till Jesus comes back and just brings the old lightning bolt. That is not the kingdom. That is not the body of Christ. That is not the Holy Spirit. Our end time view of how this all ends should not be celebrating over the destruction of many. We have much work ahead of us. We have much work ahead of us. But we must not lose sight of the fact that we are gaining ground. We're gaining ground throughout the world. I mean, Iran and China is some of the fastest growing um, pockets of Christianity. South America, if you want to call it a revival or just an awakening, it's on fire. For the Lord, there are, there are countries, nations in Africa that literally have as their slogan over their government, Jesus is Lord. There are sheep nations popping up throughout the planet. And they're choosing to do so despite losing foreign aid from the UN. Foreign aid from corrupt American government. We must not lose sight to the fact that we're gaining ground and we will continue to gain ground and because Jesus is Lord and His kingdom is advancing forever and ever and ever. Amen. Amen. And we get to be a part of this. All these excuses that we have for not engaging and not taking things seriously. We're not living in the last days. And that's no excuse 
Even if you thought we were, it's no excuse for not engaging. How many of you guys have ever heard of the seven deadly sins? Heard of that? I think there was a movie even on it. I know. None of you guys watched it. So, right? Oh, yeah, right. So, do you know where the seven deadly sins can be found in Scripture? Don't answer. They're not listed in Scripture. They're not. They're, they're, there's no Scripture that lists the seven deadly sins. Some, some of the early church leaders they got together and made a list of the worst sins so that people would know what not to do. So here, here's the list: pride, greed, wrath, lust. Envy, gluttony, and sloth. Now, when you read that list, it, it's a, it's, it seems like it's a pretty good list, but there's one, there's one on there that it seems out of place to me. They, they listed sloth as a deadly sin. It, it doesn't seem deadly to me. I mean, it's not beneficial. That's definitely. It's not a way to prosper. Definitely, right? You probably, like me, thought that laziness is not good. But, I mean, that I'm not going to go change the channel on the TV because I can't find the remote and I don't feel like looking for it. I mean, I don't think that's deadly. Right? I mean, laziness isn't good, but to call it deadly? But the problem is if you discover that the word sloth is translated from the word A-C-E. D-I-A. Asida? Asida? And sloth probably isn't the best translation for the word. A better way to convey what the early leaders of the church were trying to get across was, would be to translate the word spiritual apathy. Spiritual apathy. You reach a point where you simply say, I don't care. I don't care. It's not important. God loves you and sent the Son to die on the cross for you and to forgive your sins. And we shrug our shoulder. That's Asita. And it's an epidemic in the disengaged. When you, we have 70% of, of Americans saying that they're Christians and 35 to 40% that are in community with the church. That's a problem. If there is any sin that we can point to as why the kingdom of God is not increasing in this country the way that Jesus desire, desires it to, it's Ecclesia. Christians just don't care. The Christian that is bound by his own horizon, the church that lives simply for itself, is bound to die a spiritual death and to sink into stagnancy and corruption. We never can thank God enough for giving us not only a whole gospel to believe, but a whole world to give it to. Church, 
We must not die to the sin of Akasia. We must, it's that slow spiritual death that that quote is referring to. Church, we, we must be a church that chooses to engage. In our daily lives, with the people around us, Amen. You've been listening to a message from Karis New Testament Church. For more information or to contact us, go to www.karisntc.org. And remember, you are deeply loved, highly favored, and destined to reign in Christ Jesus.